and welcome to the Psych and P podcast, where we talk all about the life and work of being a psychiatric nurse practitioner in various settings and types of practices. I'm your host, Matt Schroer, rhymes with flamethrower. On today's episode, we talk all about working in the Psych ER and consult liaison service. Today's episode is in no way brought to you by CBS Sunday Morning. Lisa, it's so great to see you. I haven't seen you in forever. Before we started recording, we were talking, thinking the last time it was that we saw each other, and it was like March 2009 before the world ended. Or 2009, what am I talking about? 2019. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's really wonderful to see you. You too. Yeah. So introduce yourself to everybody who's listening. I'm Lisa. Um, I finished the Vanderbilt program in 2017. Wow. So I five I'm years almost, ago? Yeah, I guess I'm almost five years out. I get to apply to be re-certified this year, which is very exciting. Oh, yes. You get to pay the money again and do the recertification thing. We'll talk offline about secret ways in which to do your continuing ed. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just feels like time has flown by. It doesn't feel like five years at all. No, I can't believe it's been five years, to be honest with you. I can't either. I don't believe it. I think pandemic time has been weird, so... Yeah, so it's either ridiculously fast or so slow that it doesn't feel like time's actually a thing anymore. So I'm totally with you. And being in healthcare during pandemic times has been not the most fun thing in the world. No, I should have added it's the end of the world as we know it to my playlist. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. Although it feels somewhat better. I don't know being in the great state of Tennessee where we sort of eschewed all protocols for (laughs) most of the time. It feels sort of normal again, but I don't know how it's been where you are. I'm in like a bubble since I'm in a liberal college town. So people still wear masks at the grocery store sometimes here. So yeah, I think it's very, I actually wonder what it would have been like to be in Nashville because I think it's very, very different here. But working in the inpatient setting over the pandemic has been honestly pretty brutal at times. I, I can imagine. I, I, I'm i experiencing massive like slam of kind of mental health things. And I, I think at the beginning, and you, you know that, that I see kids and kind of primarily mm-hmm. children and adolescents. And so when we first started, there was it was kind of like kids were living their best life because school ended and they just didn't have to do anything anymore. And so they were like, sweet summer started in March. (laughs) But like now it's, they're just exhausted and they didn't learn anything for two years. And so they're stressed out and everything's really hard. And, but being in in the ER, I, I can't imagine like how that went. So you, you and I have like similar ways in which we came to nursing. So tell everybody about how you came to, to be a nurse and be a nurse practitioner. So I did not come to be an NP in the traditional way, I don't think. I actually did my undergrad degree in psychology. And then I went to get a master's degree in social work. I thought I would figure out what I liked within mental health. I knew I always wanted to do mental health. But I thought I would figure out what I liked, like what population or disorder or whatever, and then go on and get a PhD in clinical psychology. That was always my plan. But after I worked, after I got my MSW degree, I worked in a hospital setting, actually in the psych ER, where I work now as a nurse practitioner. And I realized that I really liked the medical side of things more than I thought. And so I wanted to be able to figure out a way to 
I knew I wanted to go on in school, but I wanted to be able to figure out a way to do it and incorporate prescribing and medications and all of that. So I did a lot of research, looked at different programs, PA, nursing, I can't remember what else, maybe health psychology. And I found Vanderbilt's program and I applied to a few other programs, but just like finding it, it seems like such a perfect fit. And then going, I went to the, I don't know if it's like the open house, like just from the beginning, it seemed like the best fit. And I think it was the first program that I just, you know, when I was looking online, I think it was the first program that I found. I ended up at Vanderbilt and then I ended up back in the psych ER working as a nurse practitioner instead of a social worker. <laughs> so it all came full circle. Yeah. And you've mentioned that to me sort of as being the sort of strange transition. So knowing people that you worked with before and being in a new role, talk through that and how that's been for you and early on and how it is now. Yes, it, it has been an adjustment. So I think there were a couple of factors in the psych ER there. I was hired at the same time as another nurse practitioner, Courtney who's one of my friends now. So we were hired together. She actually had worked as a nurse. So she came to, you know, NP in the more traditional way. And so she worked as a nurse in the inpatient unit. So she had her own struggles too. Because some of the nurses she worked with in the ER were nurses with her, but now she's an NP and they're nurses. So that was a struggle. And then I, my struggle was a little bit different because I had worked as a social worker with the social workers that I still work with. And now I'm in a different role as an NP. So I think we both struggled a little bit with that adjustment, and, and so did the people around us. But I think uh, we also both struggled because we were really the first nurse practitioners or APPs in general in the psych year. There was one who had been there for, I don't know, like 15 years maybe, but she didn't work in an NP role. <laughs> it was strange. She was an NP and she was paid as an NP, but they didn't have her prescribing at all. I don't really know the ins and outs of that. So it took a lot of getting used to for, I think, the other staff to see Courtney and I as providers who could order medications and labs and do all those medical things because it just hadn't been happening. So it was just an adjustment on a number of fronts. Yeah. So you were a trailblazer, um, you, you and Courtney doing this new role and then like fighting for territory almost or fighting for legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we still, <laughs> or at least I still feel like I'm fighting for legitimacy a little bit. This kind of probably overlaps with one of your other questions, but working in, I work in an academic medical center. And so the emphasis is really on doctors and residents and train med students training them. We have a, a good nursing school, but for whatever reason, they don't have a psych NP program. They have other specialties, but they don't have psychiatry. And um, I don't know, I, th I don't think that's helped us because if they did have a program, I'd love to be involved in some way. So yeah, it's still a struggle. People have, you know, different views and experiences of APPs and nurse practitioners. And I think, I think we're still fairly new as a profession. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, like still people yeah. are still learning, like what is a nurse practitioner and how is that different from a physician or a physician's assistant or the, yeah. or an RN or those kinds of things for sure. So how do you feel as though kind of the culture around being in an academic setting that's a teaching setting and that kind of thing, how you fit in the, you know, kind of expectation that sort of residents, physicians get training and, and that kind of model? Like, how do you feel like you fit inside of that kind of world? 
I think it, so I've worked in a few different settings, all in the same academic medical center. I've worked in inpatient, outpatient, ER, and I think it really depends on the setting and also on the physicians that I'm working with. In outpatient, they've had NPs for much longer, and the NPs in the outpatient in the outpatient clinic are completely independent. I have a very small outpatient clinic, like half a day a week. So it's strange to go back and forth from outpatient to inpatient because in outpatient, I don't staff any cases. I have, so the I work in an anxiety clinic. So the medical director, I have like as needed supervision with him. And honestly, most of the supervision has to do with therapy cases because I do, I see patients with OCD and do some exposure therapy. So problem solving and designing exposures is the main reason I meet with him. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's rarely about medications, which probably isn't what I would have thought going into it <laughs> or going into being an NP. I think you went back to those social work roots a little yeah, bit with that. That's, that's what attracted me to it is because I wanted to be able to use some of those skills and I, I hadn't really done exposure therapy as a social worker, but I started doing a little of it and really enjoyed it. I think you can be creative and push the envelope, although it's been a challenge with COVID. <laughs> sure, yeah. You don't want anyone, you know, out there like licking inanimate objects in, a, in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, sneeze in my mouth because I'm actually terrified of getting COVID and this is my exposure. Yeah. Uh-oh, now you're on a vent. <laughs> different uh but anyway that's outpatient and then inpatient i staff every single case verbally and the physicians see that's to varying degrees right it, it really does depend on the doctor i'm working with so it may be like a few words hey this is what's going on with this person this is the plan and i do have to keep them updated because i'm moving in between different areas so i work on the consult service a few days a week and so when i'm not there the physicians that i'm working with carry those patients so it's sign out too so it varies like how much i'm discussing with them and then and that's the same for the er but i'm verbally staffing every patient in some capacity and then the physicians are seeing some a lot of the patients actually it's a lot of the patients so that's on the other end of the spectrum so i guess i've seen both ends of the spectrum and it's hard honestly hard for me to go back and forth like i We'll see a patient in, outpatient, in the outpatient clinic and a patient with an anxiety disorder, figure out the plan, start them on an SSRI. It's not like rocket science. Decide that on my own. And then I shift and we get consults for like anxiety symptoms. Obviously, that's common for patients who are hospitalized. And I, I can't make the decision on my own there. So it's a challenge. Yeah, the, the rubber banding kind of back and forth has to be a little bit strange. Do you ever feel like you're not being utilized as effectively as you could be? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, it really depends on who I'm working with. So there's one, the, the head of the consult service is great. She really doesn't see many of my cases. I don't necessarily, you know, talk, I let her know what's going on with them all since she's covering them when I'm not there, but she's not like trying to come up with the plan. She's very laid back and pro APPs being independent. So I love working with her, but then there are other physicians. And honestly, I think it has to do with their own anxiety. And it also has to do, so I think that's part of it. I think the newer physicians tend to be more anxious and, and strangely enough, micromanage a little bit more. I thought maybe the old school, the people who didn't work with APPs as much, I thought that would be the bigger challenge, but it's some of the newer ones that I think really struggle. And 
people want to feel like they're doing something too. They're not carrying their own patients. It's all APPs and residents. So I think that's why sometimes they get really involved too. Cause sure. like, they feel like they're not doing anything otherwise. Yeah, that's been my experience, too, is that the older docs who are have done it for a while and know what they're doing and aren't as terrified of things don't tend to be as yes. anxious and micromanagey as the newer docs are, which yeah. is interesting. And yeah. l- like you said, didn't really you know, did probably didn't train with nurse practitioners and probably didn't really yeah. know nurse practitioners really well, but I think have welcomed us sometimes more than newer physicians have, which is really interesting to me. And I'm curious as to, I can make a lot of speculations as to terrible things that they're saying in, in medical schools to <laughs> about nurse practitioners stealing food from their yeah. baby's mouths and things like that. But, <laughs> but I, yeah, I've noticed that too. It's really interesting. Yeah. That's been your experience as well. Not, not at all what I expected. Yeah. So talk me through, I know you're doing kind of different things, but let's start with the ER and say, what does like a normal day look like for you? Lately, it's total chaos. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about the kid, about kids. Mm -hmm. So we see kids and adults, really any age, geriatric patients too. But I like to be completely honest, I just feel like the kids are losing it. Like we, I think the number of adults we've seen has maybe like slowly increased a little bit. The number of kids has just skyrocketed. Young kids, adolescents, but a lot of younger kids too, like with behavioral issues or autism, because obviously being at home and not in their normal structure and environment has been difficult, but we're just seeing tons of kids, a lot of bullying and social media and relationship stuff. So the numbers of patients, because we're seeing so many more kids, It's more patients in general, and we're just slammed all the time. I think the system is a little different where I am versus in Tennessee, because I remember doing like some of my rotations, like at the state hospital. We don't have as robust of a state hospital system, so we have patients sitting in the ER for days and days a lot of the time because there aren't beds. So you mean Tennessee's doing something right with mental health? Like what? Uh, Potentially. Wow, okay. (laughs) Because when I was at... What is it? Middle Tennessee. I always. MTMHI. Yes. MTMHI. When I yeah. was there, I remember we'll take a, any patient who, need, who needs a bed as long as they have a bed. So it, it, where I am, it's very different. We don't have a state hospital that can take patients acutely. There are long wait lists and, and it's a longer term hospitalization. So it's all private hospitals and they're choosy about who they take. Sure. So we I think our record is and this, you know, is not at all what I've expected going into it. I think our record is like we had a patient in the ER, not admitted, in the ER for over 30 days recently. Good Lord. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible care. It's horrible for the staff. It's horrible for the family. It's horrible for the patient. So that's uh, something else I didn't really think about in terms of ER work is sometimes it's because you're seeing people so acutely and in crisis at the beginning of the crisis, you don't necessarily see them get better mm-hmm. it's hard it's hard sometimes um to feel like you're being helpful sure and seeing a lot of involuntary patients who do not want to be there so it can be exhausting so you're the um, bad guy a lot of times yes yes but on the other hand you see everything like i love it you see so much acuity you the reason that i wanted to work there is i love community mental health type patients bipolar disorder schizophrenia so we see a lot of that it also varies seasonally so in the fall we see a lot of depression suicidal ideation kids going back to school 
And in the spring, we see a lot of mania, psychosis, substance use. So I, I feel like I've seen everything. So that is one. I'm never bored. There's always sure. something new and exciting happening. So that's one of the reasons that I liked the ER and wanted to work it. But yeah, it can be challenging and exhausting at times. We just finished, at the time of recording, we just finished March. And so March tends to be a wild time in mental health. I don't know if that's been your experience too. I feel like I can set my watch to March. And, <laughs> oh, interesting things are happening at work and must be March. I would say we always refer to it as March Madness yeah. in the ER. Yeah. Because it really... <laughs> it's so interesting how that happens. Yeah. 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 So what is like typical patient volume that you'd see in a shift? Like how long is a shift? Do you do eight, 10, 12? Does it depend? I, I lately I do it's I've done all of the above, but lately I do 12 hour shifts. That's another reason I like it is I get to do fewer shifts and longer shifts. I would, so we do, we're a psych ER where it's not like a consult to a medical ER model. So we do very thorough assessments and write quite long notes so i think it takes longer than in our model than maybe in other models so i would say in a 12-hour shift i maybe see six patients okay because each case takes a couple of hours by the time you see the case we work really closely with the social workers who see the case or get collateral information we staff the case we then, you know, the attending will see the patient, we come up with a plan, then we go talk to the family about the plan, then we enact the plan. So it's it's definitely longer on each case than outpatient. Sure. Yeah, no, it, it's, you're, there's a lot of hands involved in their care, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And then you're writing longer notes because you're referring someone to an inpatient facility or something like that. So making sure that they have an adequate kind of assessment of what happened prior to Mm -hmm. you know, them getting to their inpatient facility. Mm -hmm. It's not like really that different from kind of an admission note. Like we just, I think it's just the culture where I work. We just are very detailed and I don't know that it's always necessary, but that's how things are and have been. So it's, yeah, it's like a, it's focused on safety, but really it's a full assessment in the sense that you're checking in about everything. Sure. Sure. So what about, so you said you're like half ER and then you're doing this other outpatient kind of OCD sort of stuff. And then you mentioned consult liaison stuff. Talk through that a little bit. Yeah. So right now I'm 50-50 ER consults and it was, I was supposed to float depending on where I was needed, but that hasn't worked out as well. I'm just doing 50-50, except I do have my little outpatient clinic in there too. The consult service I've really liked because I've been able to follow patients for a little bit longer. And working in the ER, even from the start, I, I knew I needed to split it with something because you don't do a lot of prescribing and I didn't want to lose those skills. And I felt like I would. Sure. I think on the consult service where I work, we see such medically complex patients that I have, I, I'm always learning something new. I've learned a ton about, you know, how to prescribe for people who kidney failure, liver failure, transplants, like really complicated cases. So I've enjoyed that. It is one area too, where I don't mind staffing cases as much because they're really complicated patients, like medically. And that's sure. probably where I feel a little less comfortable is with some of the medical stuff. Not that anyone in psychiatry feels super comfortable with yeah, it, yeah. Um, but I don't mind talking it through. And we work really close. We have an amazing like psych pharmacist who we're always talking to. You know, it's not like everyone just knows all the answers. We're 
I think that's what I like about it. We're constantly having to figure it out. So yeah, so I've liked that and it's kept me up to date on prescribing. And also I've learned so or so many new things about prescribing for medically frail patients. Yeah. So the, all the interactions and subtleties that can happen if you've got somebody who's on 14 different medical meds, and then now you want to add the psych med on top of it, like what kind of <laughs> chaos am I going to yes, <laughs> uh, inflict on this person? Yeah. It's made me a little a little less anxious about prescribing because it's really, I don't know how to say this in a way that it's really hard to kill someone. (laughs) Yeah, no, you can do it. You absolutely can do it, but it really, the the human body definitely wants to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to be just real negligent and real aggressive in order to kill someone with medications. Yeah. Yeah. So it's made me more comfortable seeing that I can prescribe these like meds for patients who don't have good kidneys or livers or hearts and um, have all these lab abnormalities and are on a million other meds and they're they're still okay and alive and my experience too is people do all sorts of bananas things with their meds at home by themselves things that you would never actually approve of but they do that at home and they're still walking around and stop and start medicines and double medicines and all kinds of things like not that we're ever condoning any of that but it is nice to when they come and be like yeah i just i started taking three times as much as what you told me oh my gosh that's probably not great and they're fine yeah yeah or like every patient who stops lamictal for a week and then goes on the same dose what are you doing (laughs) did your skin not fall off yeah yeah Yeah. so obviously we learn about those things as the worst case scenario and we need to know about them in practice they're rare yeah thankfully although i have given someone stephen johnson syndrome that was was (laughs) pretty awesome time so the cl work that you're doing is that part of the regular hospital Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you like round over to different units and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you like better? Ooh, it probably depends on the week. Okay. Um, that's fair. <laughs> I would say right now I like consults a little better. The year has just been so overwhelming and everybody's sure. really burnt out and that can be contagious. So yeah. it's a hard place to be. I'm hoping things do tend to we get a little bit of a breather in the summer. So I'm hoping that happens this summer. But yeah, I would say right now it's probably the consult service. Yeah. And where you live is a oftentimes uninhabitable climate wise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Winter sucks here. Yes. Yeah. So what do you like about your current job? I do that I have been able to do different things and that they've been flexible and let me um, split my time between inpatient and outpatient and ER. I was the first NP to do that. All the other NPs are like very much like I only want to work inpatient. I only want to work in the ER. A lot of the psychiatrists move around, but I also, I, I like working in different places because A, I think it makes me feel less burnt out overall. And then B, I think it gives me a better understanding of how the overall system works. So how the ER works with the inpatient unit. I've done a little like weekend rounding on the inpatient unit as well, just because I had to try <laughs> every possible thing. I've also done a little bit of time on in the partial hospitalization program. I, I think that's helped me understand, okay, what I think inpatient doctors and ER doctors have different philosophies about, or providers in general, about who to admit. And so that's helped me understand things from the inpatient point of view a little bit better. Because I think they think about not just who needs to be admitted, but who will get something out of an inpatient stay. I like the flexibility and the fact that I've learned a ton and I've been able to work in different 
areas i feel yeah i feel bad like i've I've talked about a lot of things i don't like but i think it's just the nature of work though and and doing the type of work that we do it's hard and we see people at their absolute worst a lot of times and we're just i've said this to lots of people but we're just little trauma sponges and we have to suck up like all of the awful things that have happened to people. And if you're working in a setting where you're seeing people at their worst moment, me being in an outpatient setting, like I get to track people for years and frequently see them at their worst, but then get them to a really great place. And you working in an ER setting, don't get to see that. And you've already mentioned that previously, that it's hard to see someone so bad off and they'd be like, all right, see you later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely exhausting and I think not having as much independence makes it like more exhausting in a way which maybe doesn't make sense but sometimes I'm you know they're late and I'm working on a note and I'm what's the point like I'm not the decision maker I'm just here finishing the note it just feels like it's a little bit futile so I think that's not necessarily something I would have thought of going into my job or being Mm -hmm. an MP but I think that's contributed to my like burnout like you know I'm there writing the note and the person who made the decision is gone. And I'm like, still there. Yeah. 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 So do you see yourself there in another five years when you have to renew your ANC C certification again? (laughs) Well, I'll be there for at least five more years because I need public student loan forgiveness. Okay. That's fair. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would, I think it would depend. I I guess things have, have progressed in terms of, where EPPs are at in the department compared to five years ago, but I think it would depend on whether they continue to progress over the next few years. I mean, the nice thing is if I really get frustrated with it, I can always just switch over to outpatient where I would be completely independent, essentially. Sure. I just like inpatient work, so I struggle with that. Yeah, it's what you've done forever. And and as long as I've known you, that's been where your passion lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm always have this fantasy and this attraction of going into private practice. And oh, it must be great to say that I'm I'm not going to see this person or like really screen people out and like that kind of thing. But then I wonder, would I even really like that? Would I enjoy the, um, you know, it, you somehow sort of beholden if somebody's like paying you cash for something? Yeah. Seriously, yeah. I feel that you feel very responsible, too. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't think I'd like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I also fantasize about, like, working at Publix, too. That'd yeah. be great. I would love to do something mindless some days. Like, I just, yeah. I, my coworkers and I talk about that. Yeah. I was driving um, past the lottery sign the other day, and, and my <laughs> son was like, Dad, that's $195 million. I'm like, I know. And your mom and I would never go to work again. And you would go to school. And then we would have a nanny pick you up and take <laughs> care of you. And we would just vacation everywhere. And he was like, that's not cool. I'm like, well, but- that's a good point. Because I feel like you sometimes hear people say, oh, if I won the lottery, I'd still would I do what I do. I don't know that I, like, I'm passionate about mental health and I I'd want to find a way to be involved, but I wouldn't do what I do now if I won the lottery. Like, I, I'd get paid for it, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I think that, I don't think that makes anybody a terrible person to think about because the work no. that we do is really damn hard. Yeah. And it's, you have to love it and you do have to have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that we're all enough to recognize that maybe this is not, sustainable forever and i think it's one of the reasons that 
you know, I started teaching. I mean, I love teaching and I love being in having an opportunity to groom future providers and, and those sorts of things. But I mean, really, it was kind of a I got to take a breath yep. and I got to do something a little bit different because I just am like this well-oiled prescription factory. And I feel like mm -hmm. maybe I'm not providing the best care to people all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think finding a way to uh, incorporate something else, like the people I know, especially an outpatient who are like a hundred percent clinical are just exhausted. Yeah. Um, so if there's something administrative research, teaching that you can add in. And for me, it's been more like working in different areas, but if you can figure out a way to not be doing the same thing every day, I think that is helpful for a lot of people. And I think I'm, like all of us just feel, if you would have interviewed me before the pandemic, I probably would have had very different things to say. I think Sure. it's just been the past two years have just been so exhausting. How did things switch during COVID? Like for you work? -wise? So at first it was like a lull, right? Cause no one wanted to <laughs> go to the hospital because mm -hmm. everyone was afraid of COVID patients. And then that lasted for a little while. And then it was just this backlog and we were just, and that's honestly continued because now everybody, so there was a backlog, but now everybody's struggling because of the pandemic. And so it's just, then we're just seeing so many more patients, but we don't necessarily have more staff or resources. And, so, and sometimes probably less because people yeah. have left because they're so exhausted. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. People have left the ER for sure. It's, yeah, it's been especially exhausting, an exhausting place to be. Yeah. I, that has changed. And, and obviously, you know, I, I wasn't the primary caregiver for any COVID patients, like God forbid, although there was one point where I had to sign up on this like sheet to be pulled to work in a field hospital if necessary. And I was like, please like, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. Don't I, <laughs> do not. I was terrified. I was having so much anxiety about it because it was, I think it, I was also like supposed to be responsible for like 30 patients. It was just wild. Yeah. Thank God that did not happen, but, but it, we were pretty close. So I did though, or I have cared for a lot of COVID patients throughout all of this. So, you know, there's sort of like that anger at the beginning with not having enough PPE and reusing masks and nobody really knowing like how much risk we were putting ourselves at. So that was hard at the beginning, especially with the vaccine. Obviously, I feel a lot more comfortable, but we on the consulate service have seen a lot of like neuropsychiatric symptoms from COVID, like people with no history of psychosis. Who yeah. Have, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating. But then also really, I mean, you've probably just, this has been more of an issue in the ER, just people coming in and talking about the trauma they've experienced and the people they've lost with COVID that, that has been like heartbreaking. And then the substance use population has just been like floundering with the pandemic because all of the inpatient rehabs were not taking patients for a while. Everything was mm -hmm. virtual. They did not do well with that. So we've just seen uh, so much more substance use too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been rough. Did you ever switch to like virtual at all? I still, my little outpatient clinic, I still do virtual, which I like, but everything else, not really. It's been in person the whole time. Yeah. We like tried something with iPads for a minute, but it was a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. No, like that episode of uh, Big Bang Theory where Sheldon's going to stay alive forever and he puts the <laughs> virtual presence on the little robot that goes everywhere. That's maybe what it makes me feel like. <laughs> so what's like the best day you've had at your job? 
or best and worst day. You can answer either way you want to, both or one or the I think I'll say generically the best days are the days where I feel like I'm helping people and where I'm seeing sort of new and interesting cases where I feel like I have a little independence and I'm doing things on my own. You know, there are patients we see in the ER who don't need to be admitted. They come in maybe for like panic or something like that. And you can prescribe them a medication and you can try it in the ER and they can sometimes respond really well to it. And you tell them about CBT and and you get them referrals and resources and you can Mm -hmm. sometimes do all that in a visit and they are so thankful at the end. So that's not a ton of cases, but when I have cases like that, I do really enjoy it. So I think, yeah, the days where I feel like I'm helping people, I'm not getting yelled at constantly, but those are the hardest days where one patient after another is just yelling at me, um, yeah. which, cause they don't want to, you know, we're involuntarily admitting them and they don't want to come into the hospital. Look, I'm trying to help you stop. Yeah, exactly. I'm not doing this cause like it helps me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to help you. You probably yeah, have some, you've probably learned quite the colorful language doing your job. Some, yeah. some four letter words that maybe you hadn't heard of before. There are some, there are some good quotes that, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that I... That stick out in your mind? Some good stories, for sure. Some good... You can't... You honestly couldn't make this shit up. Yeah. (laughs) The stories we have. Um, No, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction, for sure, when you work in mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing that I think makes the ER difficult is that we see a lot of patients with personality disorders because right Mm. if you think about it just the struggle to cope and the poor distress tolerance they they come in frequently and that can be exhausting too i don't know how i have so much respect for people who do dbt all day long but i don't know how they do it yeah so that's that's an exhausting thing about the year we definitely see a lot of personality stuff and you're taught like certain cases you're certain Disorders, right, you try not to admit. You want to reinforce DBT and outpatient treatment. It can uh, be difficult. Yeah, yeah. What do you wish you had known when you first started? Like, knowing what you know now, like, what do you wish you could go back in time and teach your noob self? I think I think just, like, thinking about this, a little bit more about the setting that I'm in. Like, you know, I, I like ER work, but thinking about, and I like academia because I like, the, the sort of emphasis on learning and all the resources and support, but at least where I am, like it, it is so focused on doctors that it's difficult sometimes. So I think it, it's a great place for new providers. And that is what happens. People start here and then go to private practice or go somewhere else sure. because you get a lot of support at first. And I remember that really being emphasized at Vanderbilt, find a place where you will have supervision. You're not just floundering on your own, but that might not be the place that you stay forever. Uh, and that's okay. So. Yeah. So knowing that you're not like a surf tied to the land, like you can, <laughs> at some point you can go, you can leave and that you're not stuck at that place forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I know that the VA has like a psychiatry type residency. Mm-hmm. I'm not like particularly interested in that population, uh, but I do like that idea. We're trying to get something like that. Just being able, I thought I knew where I wanted to work, but I think I've done this, like trying different settings and really figuring out what I like best. I don't think there's always time to do that in school. So that's something that I found really helpful is is having the support to try different areas, even if it's just like shadowing or observing, but to get a sense of different types of work. Yeah. 
And that's the whole point of this, these podcasts is to give people a little bit of an exposure from people who are doing it every single day for students to really, or new nurse practitioners to hear about like, oh, I never knew that was kind of a setting. I didn't know I could yeah. do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There are definitely settings that I didn't think about um, when I was in school. I know about now and I'm like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you before you felt like pretty confident, like what you were doing and you didn't wake up in the middle of the night, panicked about something you had done the day before? I think I texted you a lot. (laughs) I felt like like when the text died off, I was like, okay, she's feeling more comfortable. She's feeling more confident. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. At first I was convinced I killed every patient Um, because I used to, as a social worker, worry that like I missed something and a patient would harm themselves. But yeah. then when you're prescribing, it's a little different. I was convinced that I killed someone. With... 25 milligrams of Zoloft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious looking back at it. But I think I'm trying to think of when those texts died off. Probably. So I still feel I still do have a little bit of that working on the console service because it's I'm working with such sick patients. I don't think I wake up in the middle of the night. But I did initially. So I, I would say maybe a couple of years, two years. I don't know. That's maybe a rough estimate. Okay. Yeah, but you, you were dealing with really sick patients. And so I could see where. And also just working in the setting where you were and just the, the level of intensity, that probably just takes a little while sometimes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever we would talk, it was like, well, you knew what you, you knew the right thing to do. You just kind of needed some validation for what you did. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was always the case. It was never like, oh, man, you, you made the wrong decision. It was never that. It was no. just, yeah, it was always like just wanting to talk through that. And I think that you mentioned having a place where you have support. And I think that's yeah. where those things are really helpful is to be like, OK, this is my thought process. Am I on the right track? Yeah. Yeah. No, I knew, I think Vanderbilt prepares you really well in terms of the knowledge you need. I think you gain a different type of knowledge from experience, right? Like when you've started Zoloft, 25 milligrams of Zoloft multiple times and and no one has died. Um, (laughs) Like when you have that under your belt, that's a different type of, that experience is a different type of knowledge and it's reassuring. So I think you just, you need to work a little while before you can get that. You could read a million textbooks and, and you still being in the field and doing it semi-independently is just you have to do it before you get comfortable and i don't think that's unique to us i would imagine that first year residents and interns and that sort of stuff had the same level of kind of panic about oh, 25 yeah. milligrams of zoloft to that that i think everybody does when they first start yes yes, yes. i've talked to them about it because in the er right patients will get agitated and that's one thing right there's not always a doctor around we have one doctor there at any time there's never more than there's rarely more than one like attending physicians it's residents and app's so i have to make decisions all the time quickly like what am i going to give this patient for agitation Mm -hmm. and and same with the residents and so there are times where we're like oh what do we do what do we do because maybe someone has 15 allergies and you can't give them any of the meds you're giving and you you have two seconds to think outside the box because like somebody the, the nurses are like in a tizzy and the patient's agitated and throwing things so yeah so i think they they go through it too for sure um yeah just like we do yeah your situation is unique. Your partner works in mental health as well. And so what is home like for you? Are you both able to just, do you never talk shop at home or do you always talk shop or like what happens? I'm realizing this more. There are pros and cons of it. So my husband's a psychiatrist 
And we definitely talk a lot at home, vent a lot about our days and about patients. And I love it. I can't imagine getting through the pandemic without him. He does some inpatient work too. So having someone to talk to who completely understands has been so helpful. But then at the same time, I think we have a little bit less of a separation between work and home, maybe not so much in a good way. I think when you get home, trying to sort of leave work at work is, is easier if you don't work with your, your spouse. Sure. So so I, I didn't really think about that part. I don't think I would talk about it as much and sort of bring it home as much if, if I wasn't married to him. But I'm trying to be mindful of that and not be talking about it all the time at home. Sure. I don't think it's helpful for anyone. But, you know, he's a psychiatrist. He's been in the field longer than than I have. And, and we ask each other questions. So it's not like I'm the only one asking him questions. You know, today he actually asked me a question about a stimulant and that feels good too, to be like, okay, you're a doctor, but like I can answer questions you have. Come over here and I'll, I'll teach you things. <laughs> yeah. So, but he's also like, I don't know, probably, I don't know how much of it has to do with me, but he's so pro APP, like mm-hmm. um, us being independent and he works closely with an APP who is completely independent and I'm super jealous. Obviously I I couldn't work in the same program as him. So yeah. So he, he has no ego at all about, you know, he's a really good dude and he's one of those physicians that kind of gets it and realizes that we're all on the same team. Like everybody's trying to, to work it for the same goal and nobody's crawling over each other and, and stabbing each other in the back. Yeah. And unfortunately (laughs) I think that, you know, med school was kind of miserable for him, you know, the way he talks about med school because of that, because his personality is just, he's not competitive and not that every med student is like that, but you know, the the culture, he did not do well in that culture. And sometimes like, I remember when I first got out of school, like sort of talking to him about it and we essentially do the same thing. And he was sort of jealous, like, well, why did I like torture myself for (laughs) this long? You know, it wasn't completely necessary. Sure. Uh, So yeah, I, I asked a, a couple of physicians because I was working in a hospital at the time. I was like, should I, you know, what, tell, tell me about this. You know, should I should I become a nurse practitioner? Every single one of them was like 100 percent. Like, don't do what I did. Like, no. and, yeah. And that, <laughs> and so it, it's really interesting that all of them were like, I wish I had never done this to myself. I, 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 yeah, oh, it seems yeah, miserable. Yeah, it's- I lost all these years of my life. Yeah, there's a reason like we have like a a medical student mental health program where I work and I don't think there's a nursing student mental health program. Like it's just so many of them struggle. Yeah. I mean, there really should be like because nurses yeah. need help too. But yeah, but I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like they're all miserable. Like mm-hmm. not all of them, but a lot of them are. I mean, you just are studying and working all the time and they're all depressed. So yeah, yeah. Well, so what does self-care look like for you? I think the biggest thing for me is or I, I have a tendency to be a little anxious if you hadn't if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> so working out is huge for me when I'm like feeling stressed or anxious. So I do that regularly. I think I think that's probably the biggest thing, but also I have a lot of friends from work in the field and being able to vent to them, like something really stressful happened at work, being able to call someone up uh, and talk about it. My mom is also a psychologist, so <laughs> she's in the field too. So. And your mom is delightful. Aw, she'll be very glad to hear you said that. I'll have to tell her, but I talk to her frequently too. So I think finding people you can talk to 
and it doesn't have to be someone in the mental health field, but people in healthcare or teacher, people who work with other people, right? Like it's yeah. just exhausting to work with other people and people yeah. don't understand what that's like. I think that's been really big. We used to do pretty regular before COVID. We used to do pretty regular work happy hours. And yeah. I loved those, you know, so I, w- I would have to add, I'm sure Charlene would echo this. I'd have to add wine to my list of self-care. <laughs> But I loved work happy hours and I hope we can get back to them this summer. But yeah, yeah, being able to like hang out with your coworkers a little bit. And sometimes we talk about work, but it's not always, you know, it's not everything, right? You don't want it to be a hundred percent of what you talk about. Yeah. So I think those are probably, and then my dogs, I think those are probably your sweet dogs. Ones. They're yeah. the cutest. Oh, thank you. Yes. They're my babies. Yeah. They're, they're adorable. I'm actually dog sitting for my mom's dog right now. My mom's puppy. How how are the muddies handling it? They're not thrilled about it, and, <laughs> and he's a golden retriever puppy, so he's just uh, don't tell her I'm this. But your secret's safe with me. It's, this is not being recorded at all, so it's good. She'll okay. never know. I'm okay. kidding. It is being recorded, <laughs> and I'm going to send it to her. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's just uh, not the brightest bulb, so he's kind of exhausting. Gotcha. So I made you come up with a playlist. And I want you to talk me through this. So I love music. And I think part of the thing that I love about music is how expressive it is and how it can create a mood. And it's so uniquely human. And so the, the you'll find the playlist in the show notes. So there'll be a link to it. But you have several songs on here. And we joked a little bit before that your elder millennial status kind of comes <laughs> through in some of these, which I love because you do have very much kind of eclectic things so i want to know tell me why and this is not elder millennial this is just kind of everyone knows this song but hotel california by the eagles tell me why that's on your playlist i actually like when sort of thinking about songs for this there are so many songs about substance use you know and so many celebrities musicians who struggle with substance use Mm -hmm. so that was that one and and then god of wine some of those I was thinking a lot about when I made the playlist. And you have Silverchair on here. I did not think that I would see Silverchair on anyone's <laughs> playlist. But like, yes, that speaks to my grunge roots. And it makes me very happy to see some Silverchair on there. So Anna's song. I like that song. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I don't even remember how I like first came across it years ago. But there's not a ton I've, I've worked with like patients with eating disorders and really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. And, you know, it's about anorexia, especially, so there's not a ton of, of music out there about eating disorders, especially in a male yeah. uh, artist. So, yeah. um, that one just always stuck with me as like the song about eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And I love tears for fears. Their new album's actually really good. Have you heard it? Oh, I haven't heard it. Yeah, they just came out with one. And I'm showing my elder status because I saw them on CBS Sunday morning because that's (laughs) what you watch when you're really old. You get up in the morning like, yay, CBS Sunday morning's on. I wonder who they're going to have. And and they had Tears for Fears on. And they have a really interesting story. Yeah. What what time did you watch it on Sunday morning? Uh, It's on at 8 a.m. Central Standard Time on a Sunday. (laughs) There's a nine-year-old in my house, and so we're up pretty early, regardless of what time I went to bed or what time I wanted to get up. So, yeah, Yeah. CBS Sunday morning. It's fantastic. So I think the uh, clip is on YouTube if you want to to check it out. Thank you. Yes. Yes. This has been so fun. 
catching up with you and getting to hear all about your work and all the great things that you're doing for people, even though it is very hard. I know you're doing amazing work with people and you're one of my favorite humans on the planet. And anytime I can talk to you, I think is a really amazing evening. So thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your story. So thank you for all of the nice things that you just said. I do miss Nashville and Vanderbilt, so I'm glad I still have a little connection to it. Yes. Well, you're welcome here anytime. We will we will <laughs> all we will always welcome you back. It's one thing Nashville's good for. Maybe maybe not for much longer because we're sick of people coming here. Yeah, there's it's it's there's not enough space left. I know. I know we're running out. Although my home value has increased exponentially, so I guess I can thank the Californians for that. <laughs> Yeah. Wait, are you still recording? Yes, we're still recording. Oh, okay. Because I also kind of want to come back and work for the home edit because I'm obsessed with them. Oh. Um, I feel like they need someone who has a mental health background and could help with, like, not just people who are disorganized, but people who are, like, hoarding. Sure. So I'm going to try and pitch it to them. Good. Done. I think you should do that. (laughs) It'd be fantastic and be like, I will take $750,000 a year to do this, (laughs) and I will be fantastic. Well, I just looked at their website, and one of the benefits they offer is unlimited vacation time. And I don't know how that works, but it sounds great. Sweet. I I will take this job, and you will never (laughs) see me because I'm on vacation. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know if you should say that. Just keep those paychecks coming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's unlimited unpaid vacation time. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, if you don't show up, you don't get paid. Yes. Lisa, thank you so much. Always wonderful. 